Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, as I promised on my last podcast, I'm going to talk about Disney News today and my take on Disney News. Now, I was thinking about Disney News a little bit, and I haven't done a news podcast in a while now, and the reason for that is there's plenty of outlets out there for news. Lots of people talking about Disney in general, Disney specifically, the parks, everything else. You can catch it on different forums, different websites, even on some of the social media sites. And you can also listen to many of the podcasts where they talk specifically about very specific Disney news. So what I wanted to do was kind of rethink my news segment a little bit and maybe focus more on the news items that are a little bit maybe off the beaten path a little and things that interest me. Not that I really haven't done that before, but I'm thinking about it a little differently, and I think that's what I'm going to do for Disney News from now on. Now, that's not to say I won't mention things that are of topical interest that people kind of have an interest in. Like, for example, Disneyland is celebrating its 60th anniversary with its wonderful parties that they're having, and it's just been an exciting time, and reading up on it has been great through the Disney Parks blogs, through various people's social media sites, and so forth. It's been a lot of fun to catch up on Disneyland. I haven't been to Disneyland personally since I was about mm, four or five years old, so I can't speak to what it's like exactly. I really don't remember. But I remember something about the magic of it, and when Disney World opened up, it just fascinated me because it was an extension of Disneyland. But I respect the mothership. Disneyland. And the fact that it's celebrating its 60th anniversary this year is just fascinating to me. And I couldn't go a whole year without mentioning that and some of the things that are going on there. I just think it's really pretty neat. And I invite you to go and check out some of the events and festivities. If you can't make it to Disneyland yourself, you should really just go check out some of the online reports and some of the things that are going on. It is really neat what they're doing. And it really does give that special warm feeling that you would hope to have when it comes to Disneyland. So that's kind of cool. And I might also mention that Frozen Summer is coming back to Disney World, and you're going to see more of it happening out at the Disney Hollywood Studios over the next couple of months. They've already started converting the stage over to a uh, Frozen-themed show from what it was when it was Star Wars weekend, and there's going to be a lot more things happening out there in uh, the Hollywood Studios over the summer to celebrate all things Frozen. Now, I'm a Frozen fan, don't get me wrong, I like the movie, I enjoyed it thoroughly, but it just kind of feels like it's growing too much. There's so many other things to really relish and enjoy about Disney's properties that to continue to promote Frozen just seems like overkill to me. Now, it's just a personal thing, I know, but that's the way I feel about it. Okay, with that out of the way, the general stuff that everybody knows about, I wanted to focus more on some of the things that really captured my interest. The reason this captured my interest was I read an article in Reuters about social media moms that really caught my attention. Now, I realize I'm not a mom, and I'm not really using social media in that sense, but because I have this podcast, and the podcast does relate specifically to social media, I think there's something really relevant for me here, and I I think it's worth talking about. Every year, Disney has a social media moms event that they do, where they invite some of the 
best mommy bloggers to come, and a few dads, to come and uh, be exposed to a lot of different things at Disney. Now, I don't get invited to that, and I'm totally okay with that. I'm kind of doing my own thing here, and that's good by me. But it makes me think about the big picture a little bit about what's going on and what Disney is doing. So from the Reuters article, which is by Lisa Richwine, Disney's powerful marketing force, social media moms. Wendy Wright is a homeschooling mother of two, a prolific blogger, and a well-described Disney nut. Her cats are named Mickey and Minnie, and her blog is filled with advice for visiting Disneyland, tips for holding Disney-themed parties, and reviews of Disney movies. Wright's enthusiasm for all things Disney eventually drew the attention of the Walt Disney Company, which invited her to join a carefully vetted group of roughly 1,300 Disney social media moms. The group of mothers and a few fathers are part of a Disney effort to incorporate the enthusiasm and influence of parents into marketing efforts. Wright isn't sure why she was picked, but guesses her online postings about Disney helped. There's been a lot on social media about our trips to Disney, says Wright, who writes about technology, entertainment, and other subjects from her home in Phoenix. It's very obvious we're a Disney family. Disney moms are not paid. They receive perks from the company for their efforts, including, for some, deeply discounted four-day family trips to Walt Disney World, for the Disney Social Media Mom Celebration, an event that is part vacation and part education conference. Disney does not tell its mothers what to write or tweet about, and it doesn't require them to post. Still, this year's Social Media Moms event in May generated 28,500 tweets, 4,900 Instagram photos, and 88 blog posts full of reviews and videos of kids meeting Disney characters, and the mom's postings are overwhelmingly positive. The theory is that mothers with a large online presence have the ability to influence travel and entertainment planning for other mothers. For a big chunk of our guests, it's the moms who are making travel decisions, said Tom Staggs, Disney's chief operating officer. The mothers say they have a connection to Disney as well as the possibility of scoring a spot on the social media mom celebration, which was first held in 2010. Each year, the company's theme parks division emails invitations to 175 to 200 people. This year, the moms made hashtag Disney SMMC, or social media moms community, a trending Twitter topic on the day that the invitations went out. A very magical invite with pixie dust arrived, Wright tweeted out on March 21st. In the run-up to the celebration, the invitees posted on Pinterest the Frozen-inspired outfits and the Mickey Mouse-adorned handbags they planned to bring to the Mother's Day weekend event. Exactly how Disney chooses the social media moms is a mystery. Stoking online speculation about the secret formula, one blog post offered advice on how to get picked was shared 1,600 times. Common tips including interacting with Disney's Twitter account and expressing interest in attending one of the smaller social media events Disney hosts in various cities. Disney executives will only say that they look for moms who fit the family-friendly brand, use multiple social media platforms, and are active in their communities offline. The moms include bloggers and book authors as well as radio, TV, and YouTube personalities. They tend to cover topics such as family life, parenting, cooking, travel, and crafting. In addition to their postings about Disney, and only a minority are superfans who write primarily about the company's products and theme parks. Social Media Mom said, This year's celebration attendees had a combined Twitter following of 5 million people, or about 27,000 each on average. To get on Disney's radar, Rachel Pitzel, a mother of two who lives in Playa Vista, California, filled out an online application and was accepted to a social media event the company held in Scottsdale, Arizona last June. This year, she was thrilled to receive an invitation for the celebration in Orlando, Florida. You feel like a kid again, said Pitzel, CEO of Club Mom Me, a social media and educational group for parents. But the invitation doesn't come free. Attendees get deep discounts, but they nevertheless pay for their packages, which include three nights at Disney's Yacht Club Resort, theme park tickets, fast passes to skip lines, and a beach theme party. 
Families also pay for their own transportation. At the day-long conference, the moms attend motivational sessions and receive social media tips and Disney updates. This year, they learned how to use Pinterest data, heard from an 11-year-old lemonade stand entrepreneur, Vivian Har, and listened to a Pixar producer talk about the Disney-owned animation studio. Disney reminds attendees of government requirements that they disclose the benefits they received when writing about the event. The company declined to disclose how much it spends on the program. Disney was the first major company to tap the influence of moms across a wide spectrum of social media. But the approach is now being used to promote a range of products, including Hewlett-Packards, printers, and Cottonelle toilet paper. HP hired 14 mom bloggers to post printed home craft and project ideas on its website called MyPrintly, Kimberly Clark's Cottonelle brand, paid a group of mom influencers to serve as roving reporters to share experiences at a new Kids on the Block concert it sponsored. Overall, moms spend $3.2 trillion annually to the U.S. economy, said Maria Bailey, a consultant who advised Disney on its social media's efforts and runs BSM Media, a marketing firm that connects moms with brands. I have clients who call in and say, I want to do what Disney is doing, Bailey says. Companies want to capture that mom market, and you can certainly understand that. And this story really intrigued me, because Disney really is going above and beyond to try to capture the right people to promote their brand. Look, they're not really giving them much of anything. They're just sort of giving them an opportunity to come in and learn from them, and that's pretty much it. And a deeply discounted vacation is great. That's that's really nice. But they're still paying for something, and they're still uh, getting the brand. And, And the reality is it can't cost Disney that much. Now, I have to tell you, in a previous life, I used to uh, do some other work in the uh, social media space. When I first went on the web, I actually talked about the Miami Dolphins football team. I had a blog that I wrote. I helped develop a lot of content. I helped do a lot of things. I was one of the first people online to talk about that football team. And over time, it grew into something bigger and greater. At some point, I started doing a podcast about the team. I interviewed players. I did all kinds of interesting things where it was kind of fun. Now, up until about 10 years or so ago, mostly the Professional sports stayed away from the people that were online posting about their team. It was taboo to talk about them. In fact, several NFL teams went after some of their bloggers with cease and desist orders where they were telling them, hey, you're using our copyrighted content by talking about our team, putting the logos out there and whatever, and told them not to do it anymore. The Dolphins, on the other hand, took a completely different approach. They reached out to all of the people who were blogging about the team, writing about it, going to social media in its infancy. We didn't have Twitter or Facebook like we do today. And they reached out and they they talked to all of us. And they said, hey, you know, this is a really good thing. You're sort of ambassadors for our team. You're doing something positive. You can talk about them however you want. You can talk about the team any way you want. You can be negative. You can be positive. Just be fair. It was really interesting. And then they did something kind of unexpected. They invited us all in. There were probably about 15 of us when we first started to come to Miami and come to the team's training facility and be their guests. So we got talks from the team president, the general manager, the coach, some of the players, former players. Different people came in and talked to us about different things. They brought in some social media people. They talked to us about some ideas they had for social media. It was a really fascinating thing they did. And then we got to go to a game that weekend. And we were all grouped together in one place. Now, did the Dolphins pay for all of this? No, of course not. We were paying our own way for the most part. Yes, they had some of these parties set up for us. And yes, they gave us some perks and it was really good. But they engaged us. And it was really neat to be engaged in that way. And it was fascinating to be a part of something. My work had paid off in some way. Now, over the years, I'll admit to you, I got extremely tired of talking about the one event per weekend. It's difficult to kind of stay focused and stay into that. And once you've talked to some of the great players, 
you've kind of run through it all. And I realized that I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to do something else. And that's where I found this passion for Disney. I still wanted to blog. I still wanted to talk about something. I still wanted to have a podcast. That's who I am. I like talking about something I'm passionate about. So it worked out really well that Disney afforded me this opportunity to kind of continue my thought process and do some other things. And I have to admit, I'm having a lot more fun doing this. And I can see this going on for a while when I look at the big picture and how much you know, time and effort I put into it and just how much fun I'm having. I could see it going on for a long time. Now, on an interesting note, I was uh, reading a couple of social media sites about uh, things that are changing in the food world at Disney. Now, Disney has always had this uh, kind of stigma, for the most part, of their counter-service restaurants being burgers and fries. And for a long time, that was basically true. That's the way it worked. Now, over the last maybe two decades, you've seen it evolve with more signature dining and more specialty dining and more things where they bring in executive chefs who really make something wonderful. But there's a price point associated with that. And for the most part, for the last for about a 10-year span in there. While they were doing that, the counter-service restaurants kind of remained a little bit behind the times, maybe, because they could, hadn't quite caught up with all the things that were going on. Then in the last 10 years or so, you've started to see the counter-service restaurants upping their game a little bit. There's more variety. There's more interesting things on the menu. You're starting to see things that are more interesting, that uh, really are more compelling, something you might want to eat at a counter-service restaurant. And then in the last six months or so, you've seen some changes to the menus that are actually really positive and very interesting. You're starting to see more vegetarian options. You're starting to see a, uh, a few vegan options show up in different places. You're seeing things that are gluten-free, that are allergy-friendly, and they produce those menus and they tell you about those things, and they produce them in the right way so that people can go in and they can feel comfortable with their choices, that they don't feel like they're just getting hamburgers and french fries. Also, the kids' meals with the Mickey check something that's been really positive where they're making the change and trying to promote more healthy options. So you get a juice or a milk in addition to having grapes with your, with your food instead of having french fries. And there's some, uh, some healthier options for the kids, which I think is terrific. I think it's really been a good change. And uh, I'm very happy to see that. And I, you know, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed kind of the, the dining options. But like I said, a lot of times I go into places and I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure. I don't really like the food here, that sort of a thing. If you've heard any of my podcasts, there's a lot of places I go into or that I stay away from because I don't think there's any great dining options there or any great food to, to write home about. But that's starting to change and you're starting to see the one-off things, you know, one thing here, one thing there, and it's starting to grow into something else. Now, as a natural progression of this, Disney has been tweaking the dining plan as well. People talk about the free dining plan that they offer, and well, you know, free is kind of a relative term. The free dining plan is offered when you purchase a full-price hotel room plus park tickets as a package. So they're essentially charging you close to the, the rack rate for the room plus the uh, price of about $70 to $80 a day for tickets, and they're throwing in the dining on top of that. So it's not really free because you're not getting any other discounts anywhere. That's not to say it's not a value, because it is. But it's just not quite what they make it out to be. But pe people see it changing, and they get all excited about it, and they say, oh my goodness, you're changing the free dining option. I like the free dining, and you're taking that away. What Disney is doing instead is modifying it, morphing it a little bit to make it more effective and get more people to take advantage of it. Look, for them to throw in the dining, they're still making money on the deal. So it's a good, it's a very positive thing for them to do, and they should continue to offer it. But I think they'll continue to tweak it and evolve it until they get to a point where they're comfortable with it, they're making the right profit margins, and people aren't left with a lot of unused credits, where they're unhappy about that, and where you have the right choices in the credits you can use for different things. 
So you can trade in more of your snack credits for something else, right? So it becomes more of a value to you in some way, and you get more for what you've got. So it works. It, in the long run, I think it works out pretty well for most people when you take the free dining option. Just consider it carefully when you think about what you're getting and how many meals you're going to eat and whether you should take the deluxe dining option or the counter service dining option or which one's better for you. You have to kind of think it through and, and analyze it when you're doing your research and, and thinking about your Disney vacation. Now, there was a survey that went out a couple of weeks ago to some guests who had recently visited Walt Disney World, and they were talking about having potentially tiered ticketing. So what it would mean is at different times of year, they would charge different prices to get into different parks. So they could do different uh, ticketing prices, basically. And they would have like a, the, what they, one of the things they suggested was talking about a gold, silver, and bronze package. So if you went certain times of year, you would pay less, and that would be the bronze package, and it's certain days of the week, and so on. And they would kind of uh, time that up. I give Disney credit for trying to think through how to be most effective and get the most people in the park and kind of balance your time across as I said before, it's always about trying to balance it. You know, you're really, you've got your peak times around Christmas, July 4th, most of the summer. And uh, you've got a uh, big time around Easter where a lot of people are on spring break. And those are your heavy packed times in the park. The rest of the time, you have to fill the park in some way. And how do you do that? There's different ways. You could try changing your ticket pricing. You could try encouraging local residents to come in. You could try selling more uh, timeshares, uh, excuse me, the vacation club. And you could do different things to, uh, to try and bring people in. And I see them doing these different things, and I'm kind of curious to see where they net out with, with this sort of idea of uh, tiered ticketing. Now, with kind of thinking about the, what I said before about you buying a hotel package and your park tickets that are relatively high on the ticket scale, you know, what they're thinking about here is just adjusting the price up. So if you bought it as a package, your price might be a little higher at peak times and a little bit lower at off-peak times. If you're just going to buy a three-day pass and you're not going to stay on property, you won't get the premium and you'll have to pay a little bit higher price. That's what it amounts to. I get that. And I see where they're going with it, but I want to see how they actually implement it. Usually Disney is pretty sensitive to what the consumer thinks. So I'll be curious to see how they kind of think it through and what they do for the consumer to try and make it more effective. And speaking of that, thinking about how the consumers are affected and uh, what the public thinks about them, there was a story floating around on the web early this year about a group of uh, employees in the IT department who were laid off. And they were told that as a part of their severance package, they had to train their replacements who were coming from offshore. And it's an interesting thing because big businesses do a lot of this. I've heard about this in many different large corporations where they do a lot of these things, where they lay people off and bring in lower-priced people to come from other countries to come and work. Disney has an advantage. If you heard back on a previous podcast I did a while ago, I'll put a link to it in my show notes page, I talk about Disney's visa program and how they created legislation to allow them to bring in specific workers to come in, and it was all part of this whole Epcot plan, to bring in workers to come and do work at the, get the company and uh, be able to um, get them through the visa process much more quickly because they were coming as part of an international exchange program. Well, the, the problem is they found a way to kind of skirt around the rules just a little bit and kind of make this a little bit different where they were hiring some of these IT people to come in under the same rules. Right or wrong, I, I don't want to get into the politics of that, but certain members of Congress, most notably Bill Nelson, who's from Florida, thought, you know, there's something probably wrong with this. Let's look at it. Okay, you know, so they'll look at it and they'll figure it out. In the meantime, Disney kind of changed its policy a little bit because there was a shift in the way they were perceived, and they didn't want to be perceived that way. So kudos to them for realizing that there was a little bit of public backlash, and they had to rethink their policy. Look, they should do whatever they need to do as a company. They're a large company. I'm not faulting them for doing what they do. 
A lot of companies do it. doesn't make it right or wrong. They just do it. Disney needs to decide what they want to do and kind of go down that path as well. But be aware of what the backlash is. So what you hear is, you know, there were going to be more layoffs in another division, and they canceled those for now while they th rethink their policy. Now, I think partly, too, I think the story that we all heard about the, whatever it was, large number of people in IT that were laid off, I think that was probably kind of misrepresented slightly in the media where it wasn't as many people as it was perceived to be or presented to be. It was probably a smaller number, and there was probably some different things that they had for them. And it wasn't quite what it seemed, but... In general, the fact that it got out there as news made Disney aware of it, and they had to kind of back off a little bit. Now, speaking of what it cost to go to Disney, there was a really interesting article that the Washington Post put out, how theme parks like Disney World left the middle class behind. Now, I'm not going to read the whole article in this case. I'm just going to put a link to it in my show notes page. This is an interesting thing I've been thinking about for a long time. When you think about the cost of going there and the fact that the cost has continually gone up, and they're putting more vacation club properties in, more premium vacation club properties at that. They're essentially taking the middle class out of the picture. Used to be able to go to Disney, I used to be able to get a ticket and go into Disney for $20 a day. Wasn't that long ago. It was less than 20 years ago that I was able to do that. And now it costs me closer to $80 a day to go in. Um, and depending on what sort of pass I buy, because sometimes I'll buy the annual pass and whatever, it can be a little bit cheaper uh, than that, depending on how often you're going to go. So you kind of have to price that out for yourself. But I don't often stay at Dis on Disney property. And I would say that I never buy the dining plan. It just doesn't work out for me that way. So I pay out of pocket for a lot of things, and that's okay. But I kind of pick and choose the things I want to do, and that works for me. But that doesn't work for everybody. It's just interesting how it's become sort of a premium that they put on things, and they have the, they have the whole vacation experience being what it's all about, rather than being about just visiting Disney World. Is Walt turning over in his grave over this? Or maybe or his is his cryogenically frozen head turning around in its uh, cryogenic freezer? Uh, I think the answer is probably no. i got to believe that this isn't what Walt had in mind, to continue to build high-end resorts and build vacation club properties and have people going there. But, on the other hand, if you look at the big picture, people are living there for a week at a time, so it's kind of almost sort of kind of like in the Epcot sense of things, where he's thinking about them as you know, temporary residents who are there and they're visiting and they're, they're contributing in some way. Now, maybe they're not contributing through the, thing, the ideals and the things that they're building, uh, that they're not bringing new technology, but maybe they go back and they see something interesting and they create something at home, right, that's you know, God got some ideas behind it and it's, you know, maybe they come up with some new, new technology because of something they saw or something that kind of inspired them in some way. People are Disney uh, fanatics and that's great. And I hope that uh, it does inspire them in some way, but it makes you wonder about, you know, kind of where it's all going because that's not really what Walt had in mind. He wanted a place to take his two daughters for the day to be able to enjoy it, keep it clean, keep it neat, keep it orderly. And that's where we were. And now we've kind of gone to something else. It's not to say it's not affordable. It's not to say that people can't still enjoy it. It's just different. And, you know, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, well, I have my opinion about it, and I think you can guess where it is. It probably leans a little bit more to the bad side, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's just one more thing you have to consider when you think about the big picture of, you know, what, what you're getting for your, your dollar. You can certainly go to a concert and spend as much as you spend it a day at Disney. And the concert, you know, you go for, you know, you go for a couple of hours and you have fun and you enjoy it. Say you go to a sporting event, like say the Dolphins game I mentioned earlier, you know, you maybe you spend a hundred dollars to do that and it's only a couple of hours and whether you feel good or bad is dependent on whether your team won or not. So, you know, on the whole, it's not so much more expensive than any other entertainment thing, but 
there's sort of a limit to it somewhere. And I don't think we've reached that limit yet. And I think Disney will can try to press it to get further up closer to that limit. So you'll see more Vacation Club properties popping up and one-off added experiences that they'll be putting in there and additional charges for things. But we'll see where it all winds up. You just don't know. Uh, at this point, we just kind of have to wait and see and just enjoy it for what it's worth and keep uh, enjoying yourself. There's 104 days of summer vacation and school comes along just to end it. So the annual problem for our generation is finding a good way to spend it. Like maybe building a rocket or fighting a mummy or climbing up the Eiffel Tower. Discovering something that doesn't exist hey. or giving a monkey a shower. Surfing tidal waves, creating nanobots, or locating Frankenstein's brain. Finding a dodo bird, painting a continent, or driving a sister insane. As you can see, there's a whole lot of stuff to do before school starts this fall. Come on, Barry! So stick with us, cause Phineas and Ferb are gonna do it all. So stick with us, cause Phineas and Ferb are gonna do it all. Mom! Phineas and Ferb are making a title sequence! Well, I was sad to hear that Phineas and Ferb is ending its run. I'm an adult. I love this show. I think it's terrific. It's so well thought out, and it appeals to people on different levels. My teenagers love it. My seven-year-old loves it. I love it. I think it's really, really well done. And I'm sorry to see it go, but I kind of understand. It's been on and off. Been broadcast for about eight or nine years now, so it's, you know, it's kind of reaching its end. Now, that's not to say they won't come back with specials, but the summer is finally ending. And, you know, the last show was kind of bittersweet in a way, but it was really, really well thought out. Really great. And I'll still enjoy watching the shows every once in a while when they come on. Or I might buy the DVDs just because I thought they were really that good. Now, over in Epcot, I certainly hope that they keep the World Showcase Agent P experience going. Because I think that's a really fun thing. And my son and I enjoyed doing that again uh, when we went up there a few weeks ago. And I, I really hope that they keep it up because that really is a lot of fun. And it's, it's fun to interact with these different characters. Good morning, Harry. Now that's the way to wake up. This is going to be the best day ever. We consider every day a plus to spend it with the platypus. We're always so excited because he's semi-aquatic. Our uncle winkers and had enough spring smiles to the both of us. Life's never buddy duddy with my wet footy buddy. One more question I see. Now, I did catch an interesting story about Industrial Light and Magic. That's the innovation lab or the technology arm that George Lucas created in order to create 
all of the Star Wars universe that he had. It was a means for him to have funding and be able to create all of the, the physical objects and everything that he had and then to move on to the computers to do the computer-generated things. When uh, Disney uh, bought out Star Wars from George Lucas, they bought Industrial Light and Magic too. So what Industrial Light and Magic is working on right now is a new way of bringing virtual reality to storytelling. And they've got some things that they're working on where it's very clever and it's immersive. And you're doing things where you're going to have a video game where you put on maybe a headset or you stand in a room or something. And then you're immersed in the scenario that's around you. The way you move works and interacts with the characters that are there. And I saw some quick video of this. It's just a promotional video, so it's not very long. But it looked really intriguing. And I wonder how this fits into the big picture of what Disney is planning for Star Wars Land. Clearly, there's going to be more Star Wars things happening at Hollywood Studios or elsewhere. Can't guarantee it's going to be at Hollywood Studios, but it will be somewhere. And when they do it, what happens? You know, How do they incorporate some of these new ideas and techniques and events and things and games and different things into what they're doing? I think there's some really intriguing opportunities for them to build something and really grow it and uh, have something intriguing that, um, that I think would be really fun and fascinating and interactive. And I just think there's some great opportunities there, and I really hope it comes together and they, and they make it work. And I think Industrial Light and Magic is one of those things that's kind of like got the spirit of Imagineering in some ways where they have no limits. They just have to build something that's going to be useful. And what that something is depends on what their needs are at that point. So I think they have a lot of opportunities to grow something and build something that's really pretty cool. But there's a Peruvian woman who's claiming that uh, Disney stole the idea from her book for the idea for Frozen. So they, she filed a lawsuit, and we'll see where it goes. But it was interesting because many of the stories that Disney has produced into, into movies tend to be based on some other stories. Now, whether they purchase them or not, you know, like the Mary Poppins tale and those sort of things, kind of debatable in some ways. But in general, I think that Disney is pretty good about, uh, about buying up these properties. Now, whether this one happens to meet the standards for copyright infringement, I don't know. I don't know the merits of the case. I'm not aware of the details. It was just interesting that this woman claimed that she had, uh, that she had the story originally. And she produced enough evidence to make a little buzz for herself among the, uh, among the uh, media where they looked at the storyline she had written and they looked at the way Frozen runs and there's some, enough similarities there where it's not just trivial you know, nonsense where somebody just says, hey, you stole my idea. No, she had actually published a story and there are some similarities in the way that the sisters interact and what happens with them. So interesting. And we'll see where that nets out. I, I just find that kind of, kind of intriguing. That caught my attention. Now, one story outside of Disney that kind of caught my interest is there's a... Um, water park in uh, Orlando or in Kissimmee or in that area near Lake Buena Vista where Disney is. And it's called Wet n' Wild. And um, the Wet n' Wild property, it was the first uh, water park in the area. It was before um, River Country. It was before anything else. So it was the first one in Orlando. And it actually, I think it's one of the first in the U.S. that was a standalone water park. It was created in like the early 1970s time frame, and it's been renovated many times since. At some point, Universal Studios bought the land that it sits on, and they've been renting it from Universal ever since. Now, the thing is that Universal decided to build their own water park, and I guess they finally came to an agreement with Wet n' Wild to basically buy them out, so Wet n' Wild itself will be shutting down at the end of next year, at the end of 2016. Now, I find that kind of interesting. Wet n' Wild was an interesting place. I visited it a number of times when I lived in Orlando. It was a lot of fun. But it's interesting how things have evolved over time, and you know the property got sold and everything, and things changed. So 
it's uh, Universal has announced no plans so far for what they're going to do with that property, but it looks like there will be some expansion of some sort in their uh, offing uh, as they look at different things that they're trying to do. And I mention this because I think it's interesting, you know, Wet and Wild inspired River Country to a degree because they wanted to kind of compete with that idea of having a, a water park. And then really Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon came around as a result, the direct result of how the Wet and Wild property grew into something where they wanted to attract people to come in there and enjoy their day at a water park. So it's kind of interesting how that happened. And then, of course, Legoland built their own water park, and Universal has its own water park. So there's a plethora of water parks in uh, the central Florida area. And uh, Wet n' Wild, the oldest one, will be uh, closing. And some of their recent renovations, I don't know how they'll work out. They may wind up moving some of them to the uh, Universal property. Who knows? So just found that kind of interesting that, that something changed there. And one other article that caught my attention, and actually it has to do with uh, costume characters who appear on stage as uh, Disney characters, so the people who dress up as Mickey and Minnie and so forth. Disney is trying to block them from posting to social media that they play those characters because, of course, they say that the characters are the real characters. And, uh, you know, if you kids are listening, they are the real characters. Just trust me on this. This, this has nothing to do with you. And So what happened was the Teamsters Union uh, went, went in and complained that Disney was committing an unfair labor practice and a, and a grievance was filed with the company. The two-week-old written policy prevents actors from publicly revealing in social media or traditional media which characters they play. And so it kind of changed the way you think about uh, the characters. So the Teamsters uh, are trying to uh, stop Disney from doing that. Disney wants to protect the integrity of the characters. And where this goes, anybody's guess. But I think they'll probably settle out of court and they'll find a way to uh, write it into the contracts in the future for new hires that will be uh, precluded from writing anything on social media about what characters they play. Interesting, isn't it, how social media has kind of taken over and there's things that have happened that are just very different than what we would expect. Now, I wanted to end today by talking about the movie Tomorrowland. Now, I realize that Tomorrowland turned out to be a big flop at the theater. It really wasn't much of anything, and they're calling it Disney's Biggest Loser, that it lost so much money, and it was surprising, and it really wasn't that good, and it got panned by the critics and so forth. And I have to tell you, I really liked it. I saw it, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's kind of a utopian look at society and how it can go wrong and what happens there and sort of that genre of things. Yeah, maybe the characters were a little stiff and they could have done a better job of acting it out or to give them a little bit more direction on what they were doing and so forth. I'll, I'll grant you that. But conceptually, I was fascinated. The character Athena has a great quote. Dreamers need to stick together. It's not programming. It's personal. That kind of spoke to me in a weird way. It's it just one of those things where I think in doing this podcast and in doing different things where I think about the future, and if, if you go back to my early comments about talking about the dolphins, that's, that's physical reality. Those are players, and some of them suffer from dementia. And, and Disney is about dreaming. Disney is about thinking about the possibilities and dreaming about the future and imagining greater things. So I really think that that's, you know, that's one of those things that kind of captured my attention when I saw the movie. I was thinking about the bigger picture of, 
the dream of what Disney is, the imagination of it all, where, where Disney kind of nets into the big picture. So essentially what they're saying is that the, uh, the land that was created uh, at the 1964 World's Fair still exists in sort of an alternate reality sort of, sort of sense. I think if you see the movie, it'll make a little more sense to you. But in general, the concept is that there's this sort of utopian society that's been created by some of the thinkers, dreamers, and doers. And they've they've done something, and now there's a there's a problem with it, and it may come to come to an end, and so our heroes have to find out how to fix it. So you get the big picture, right? So that's the general story. What I'm reminded of is the is the uh, book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Now the story there is really pretty pretty thorough. You know, John Galt, this character, creates this utopian society where he's taking the best and the brightest, the dreamers, the doers, the imagination people, and taking them into his utopian society. And they're creating a, a more perfect society that will take over once the uh, basically the United States collapses uh, because of its heavy legislation and all the things that are going on there. And I don't want to wade into the politics of it. I know, you know, certain politicians have their opinions about the, this book and whatever, and they're wrong, I think. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Miss Rand had an interesting way of looking at the world, and she um, thought she was very thoughtful about capitalism and its evils and communism and its evils and sort of created this book as sort of the balance to kind of fill in some... Uh, maybe it's a little far-fetched. Maybe it's, you know, it's essentially your your fictional drama type, type of thing. But it's it's so well thought out about how things happen in the world and how the world kind of comes together. Now, I found the movie Tomorrowland kind of took that same tone where you're thinking about the world in a different space. And, you know, the dreamers, I think they get it. The people who are the realists kind of dismiss the film as going, eh, it's just, you know, it's just tripe. It's, it's trivial. It doesn't matter. And I get that. I understand where they're coming from. But I found that it was really fascinating following the lead characters through and trying to figure out how they're going to solve this problem of, of uh, keeping the, this society alive is just amazing. And I thought George Clooney did a nice job in it. I thought uh, several of the characters there were very clever. I thought the tie-ins back to the 1964 World's Fair were really pretty, pretty neat. And uh, I actually kind of liked the, uh, the characters. They um, the, had the uh, audio-animatronic character. She's Athena, and uh, she's really pretty good in the, in the story. And you got Casey, who's your protagonist, and she's trying to make things happen. Bound by a shared destiny, a teen bursting with scientific curiosity and a former boy genius inventor embark on a mission to unearth the secrets of a place somewhere in time and space that exists in their collective memory. Now, I admit it. I went in with low to no expectations. I kind of went in and just said, okay, let's see what this movie's all about. And when I came out of it, I thought, you know, I really did enjoy it. I was thinking about it for several days after. And to me, that's the mark of a good film because it captured my imagination in some way. And maybe it's the fact that it kind of centered on the seminal moment in the Walt Disney timeline. Or maybe it's just because it looked at the imagination. Or maybe because it harkened back to Atlas Shrugged. I don't know which of those things. Or maybe it's a combination of all of those things. That the dreamer in me kind of got captured up and caught up in the moment. I had the feeling that even though it kind of failed at the box office, it's going to become a cult classic and people are still going to enjoy watching it for some time to come because it really does capture the imagination in some way. I don't want to spoil the whole movie for you and tell you how it comes out or what happens, but if you sit and watch it with an open mind and think about it from the perspective of being a dreamer, I think you get it. I think it, it makes more sense. I think it's easier to watch it that way if you just kind of detach yourself from reality and think about the, the movie. It's pretty good. You know, you got the, the boy genius and the girl with the scientific curiosity who really wants to understand more. And the two of them team up, and they're terrific. 
and they come up with you know solutions to problems and get in there. Um, I thought Disney. One of the things Disney did that I thought was very clever was they came up with something called Pure Ultra, a made-up group of inventors and scientists. Um, among them, like Nikolai Tesla, um, Albert Einstein. Uh, uh, Mr. Eiffel, who built the, built the Eiffel Tower, Walt Disney, and others who would have been in this secret society who were looking for the betterment of the world. And they did a really good job of creating websites, promotional videos, um, getting the word out there, who is Pure Ultra, and making this hype around something that was very subtle behind the scenes that for a while there, when I first heard them talk about Pure Ultra, I was like, wait, I don't remember ever hearing about this society. And I started Googling it, and I started finding links and informational videos and different things. And there was a, a whole stream of tweets about who is Pure Ultra. Um, and it was really kind of interesting because they lured me in for, you know, maybe a couple of minutes where I was thinking it was a real society. And then I realized, no, it's not a real society at all. It's something that they made up for the film specifically. But they did a very nice job of marketing it and making that a part of the imagination part of it. And yeah, you know, it's kind of like if you ever read... Um, any of Dan Brown's books, like the uh, Da Vinci Code or whatever. Those books do the same kind of thing, where they take the imagination and they draw it in a different direction. And they're saying, yeah, these events happened and here's how they relate to each other. And they never really related to each other. But it's very clever in the way they think it through, and they make things happen and make you believe that it actually happened that way. And I was fascinated by that, and I just thought it was really, really well thought out. Now, maybe it would have made a better book than a movie. It's hard to kind of turn a theme like that into a movie. Kind of back to my Atlas Shrugged notation a moment ago. If you think about Atlas Shrugged, that book was written in um, the 1950s, and it's like 600 pages long or some ridiculous amount. They tried for years and years and years and years and years to make a movie out of it. They never could. So instead, what they did was they made three separate movies that were each two hours long that kind of told the tale in some way, and they changed the actors, and they put them out over the course of six years. And the movie's good. It's not great. The book is much better. But it's a, it's a pretty good representation of the book, where most times when you have a long book, they can't do a movie right. They just can't get it right. They can't get the information out there. It just doesn't work. That's just the nature of it. So I think if they had written Tomorrowland as a book and it had read as a book, I think it would have been terrific. I think it really would have been well thought out because you could get all the details and the, the essence of it right. Here they kind of put it together as a movie, and the movie's a little bit on the long side, but they couldn't get all the details just right. I, I wonder if there's more details that they'll put out in uh, maybe the uh, version of it when they release it to DVD, where they'll tell more of the tale and fill in some of the blanks and you know kind of help with the story a little bit. We'll see. But I really did enjoy it, and I just you know I wanted to mention it because I thought it was really pretty good. And that's just my opinion, and you could have a different opinion. I have. Look, I'm not telling you what to like or what not to like. It's just something that I really enjoyed because of the imagination of it all. So that was my, my take on it. Well, anyway, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope I've provided you with some interesting insights into uh, news articles related to Disney in some way and maybe a quick movie review in there. And I hope you, uh, you continue to kind of use your imagination yourself and be a dreamer. And on that note, remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... 
please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.